Well, given the fact that we have slim numbers today, it is a, it is a, big, it is a big Sunday. Uh, I want to tell you what's going on in advance so that you're not lost, okay? Um, been talking on the preeminence of Christ. I believe this is the third Sunday of this. And all I've sought to do is make Jesus the biggest thing that we can comprehend. Well, and even then, we can't comprehend all the way. But we talked about the preeminence of Christ just in the very nature of Him being first among rank. Um, today, we're talking about preeminence of Christ in the church. We talked about the preeminence of Christ in Christmas, of course. And we went back to Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And today, we're going to finish with the preeminence of Christ in the church. Now, that's, that's one aspect of what's going on here today. The next, the next aspect of what's going on here today is that we are appointing a new elder today. Okay? JT. And so, I'm going to try to pull these things together. And I think the text will allow us to do that. Because the, te- the text should determine all of these things. Amen? Okay. So, pray for me as I, as I seek to, to do this. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, and notice who it says, by Christ Jesus. And it says, to all generations forever and ever. This is one of those, those occasions where the word forever actually is very sound because it's bound in the eternal one. The, the Lord has an unchangeable priesthood because He never dies. And so He will forever be the priest, our high priest. And He will forever be our king. And He will forever be our prophet because He cannot die. So this is one of those truly events. And, and, and also, there's glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations for that very same reason forever because, and then it, it includes an additional ever, because Jesus is the very God-man. He laid his life down and then he took it up again. He cannot die, which is why when we talk to other religious groups that what we would that are that are cultic, and they try to make Jesus limited, uh, and and say in some form or fashion that man has to make up the difference. They have removed his preeminence. Follow, or any kind of doctrinal system, any kind of doctrinal system that subjugates Jesus to to even getting him close to a second-tier status in emphasis, right? In emphasis, he loses his preeminence. So, the preeminence of Christ is a grand subject. Paul Washer has wrote a book on the preeminence of Christ. You should consider getting it. I I want it, but it's not in my software system yet, so I'm going to wait. But uh, it would be a fabulous read coming from him. But do you get the majesty of this verse? 
we read our Bibles, right, and, and we just, we, we flow through the text and we, we read things that are so grand. Now to him, God the Father, who is able to do exceedingly, not just can do bunch, but exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, makes me pause sometimes and say, well, am I asking anything? What am I asking for? Do I not ask because I don't believe he will or can? So there's, there's questions when we ruminate on the text. But it says, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Whose power? Jesus' power. The power of the Holy Spirit, the oklos of God, the other one like him. And the whole point is that there be glory to the Father in the church by what Christ supplies his people. Now, where in this does it leave any room for us to have to help him out? Right? Jesus can bench 350, but not 355. I got to do the last five pounds. Well, with that being said, remember what, re, what is preeminence? It is first in rank above all others. It is the declarative message of what Colossians 1.18 says. For many... Oh, I've got to be in the right verse here. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He's the head of it. Which is why 14 and 15 is important. Because in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Prototokos is where we get the idea of, of the, the unique God, man, manifest. The first in rank. Colossians calls, calls him the very one with whom he made the worlds. Jesus sustains all of this. And of course, John tells us he was in the beginning with God because he was God. It's not just that he happened to be following along. He was God. So when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about God. Yes, we're talking about the second person of the Godhead. But we're talking about God. The one God, okay, with whom we live and move and have our being. He's this head of the body. Now, the, the New Testament uh, paints a lot of pictures about the body of Christ, the body, his body being a, a human body. There's a lot of imagery talking about that. So when it says that he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence, not only is it talking about that he is chief among it, but also the illusion of if, if we lose our head, <laughs> our body just kind of, you know, we, we don't know where it goes and it topples and falls down. Um, our body dictates what, or I mean our head dictates what everything else does, right? And that's why we always tell people, don't lose your head because then your body's going to follow through with whatever activity comes next. 
He is preeminent this way. Quoting from Calvin's commentary here on Colossians. It says, The head of the body, having discoursed in a general way of Christ's excellence and of His sovereign dominion over all creatures, He again returns to those things which relate peculiarly to the church. Under the term head, some consider many things to be included, and unquestionably he makes use afterwards, as we shall find, of the same metaphor in this sense, that as in the human body it serves as a root from which vital energy is diffused through all the members So the life of the church flows out from Christ. And again, Colossians 2.19, not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Of course, that goes back to John chapter, uh, what is it, 15, that talks about I am the vine, you are the branches. Okay? And so we have no strength unless we are attached to, to the, to the vine, because we're a branch and we draw our nourishment. So that's just a, that's another metaphor for, for who Christ is as the head. Here, however, Calvin writes, he says, In my opinion, Paul, the writer of Colossians, he speaks chiefly of government in this, in this Colossians 1.18 passage. He is the head of the body. He shows, therefore, that it is Christ that alone has authority to govern the church, that it is he to whom alone believers ought to have an eye and on whom alone the unity of the body depends. Amen to that? I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But here's, here's just a question in passing. Christ is the source of all truth. Therefore, to have true unity You have to have truth. You can't have truth at the expense, I mean, you can't have unity at the expense of truth. Right? So where do we go when we get this truth? We get it from the Scripture. What part of of the Scripture? All of the Scripture. And what do we see permeating constantly from the Scripture? The preeminence or headship of Christ. Okay? Okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, and then in verse 27 and 28, it says, For as the body is one, and this would be the metaphor, and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. And notice who it says. There's two groups of people. And in this day and time, when the church was, was comprised of Jews who had a real hard time with Gentiles, okay? It says, whether Jews or Greeks, if we're in Christ, we're all one in that same body. For in fact, or it says, uh, whether slaves are free, and notice it says, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Now he's talking about how there's lots of us, individual believers in Christ, and there's tons of different nationalities and ethnicities, goyim of the rest of the world, except we're all, and Jew, we're all one in Christ. There's lots of us, but it's one body, okay? So we may be a part of a local congregation here, 
but we are part of the body of Christ universal. Or back in the old days, before it got bad, Catholic. Okay, that's what it meant. It meant the universal body of Christ. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And the NLT actually says, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. I'm going to look up some scriptures here. In Ephesians chapter 4, first of all. Verses 3 through 6. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And my favorite, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in y'all. Okay? Because that's, yeah, that's how it should be. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this connects, and this is just what I would call connecting the Scripture, okay, harmonizing the text if we were in seminary. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 4, where do we get the idea that NLT brought up, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit because the New King James says, for in fact the body, or let's see, we have all been made to drink into one spirit. It's, it's, it's the saying the same thing, NLT brings that a little better, but it comes from... 1 Corinthians 10, and this comes out of Exodus 25. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All, now you've noticed the word all here happening. Okay, we just went through that. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So, who is it we are baptized into? Christ. Is there a separate department for me being a Gentile and those being a Jew? No. He's not divided. So, we are one in Christ. One body. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. Okay? And then it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11... Where there is neither Jew, or there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. But now notice this happening again. But Christ is all and in all. So all is used a lot. And I think if you put that together with the ending of the other, what you get is all y'all in Christ are his body. Now, that just to me screams preeminence. Because it's all about him, not us, but by his mercy, he's brought us in. Okay? And then finally, verse 27, 28 of Corinthians, now you, now you, he says, are the body of Christ and members individually. So yes, what you do individually as a member affects me and what I do affects you as a member of the body of Christ But we're because we're all one, but we're individual members. That's why we're going to fix to go into our 21 days of prayer and fasting and you need to consider this. 
and, and we've been saying this for a long time now, but maybe this makes more sense. What you, what you, what y'all all, okay, did you get that? Okay, what y'all all do in your devotion and seeking the Lord in the 21 days will be manifest together when we assemble. Okay, so if, if, if all y'all, referring to the text, come fully charged to the corporate gathering of the saints, we should have a very bright service. But if a lot of y'all are not fully charged when coming together with the corporate gathering of the saints, we're going to be like a cheap light bulb. Okay? That's how that works. And so God has, and, and this is the, now this is the transition point of the message. Whew. The church then is all of the redeemed of all the ages. And it's full of all of y'all out there. Right? So all the way back and then forward. I'm going back to the garden, by the way. And then I'm coming forward all the way to Revelation. Okay? Or I should say the consummation in 1 Corinthians 15. Whichever. That's the church. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, young and old, boy and girl. You get it. But in this body, this church, where, where Jesus is the, the kephale, the head, Right? He has appointed, notice this, it says here in verse 27, 28, and God has appointed these in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, and after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. So we see this word appointed, these things that God has put in the church, and it means to assign a duty, a responsibility, or obligation to someone. That's the way the church functions, okay? God puts and appoints his people, his leaders in the body. That's discerned by the body. And God has done that for the benefit of the body. Now, do you say to what end is that benefit? Well, look here in Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 6. Verse 11, um, a couple of things. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope, we've read this, of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now the word above, epi, in the Greek, means over all. Romans 9, 5 says, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So since he's the preeminent one over all, and we are his body, okay, then it, he has the right, divine right. <laughs> we hear about the divine right of kings, and there are people that, you know, get indigestion. But we, don't, we have a hard time with kings here in America. But, well, we used to. 
Now they're called other things. They're called politicians. But anyway, um, we have a hard time with monarchy. We don't understand it very well. But we're talking about a complete and total, all-powerful Lord. <laughs> uh, monarch. Jesus, preeminent. And, and he has the right then to appoint these these people. And so it says in verse 12 of Ephesians, and he himself, this is on this, now this is a setup after verse 11, laying the claim of why Christ can do this, says, and he himself gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So if you're going to have a true church, a local assembly of believers, an ecclesia, okay, which, by the way, did you know that word is related really closely to synagogue, in, uh, the, where we get our, synagogue, our word, the synagogue in, in, the, in the Greek New Testament? When Jesus was talking about his church, the, the, the disciples who were all Jewish, right, never said, well, what's that? What, 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 what nonsense are you speaking here, this church thing? Have you noticed when you read the text, it's never even, they, they don't even stumble. Now, they had a lot of other places. Who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Because Jesus talked about kingdom, 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 kingdom. And then he talked about ecclesia, 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 ecclesia. The church, the church, the church, the church. And, and the disciples, with all the things that they stumbled over and were curious about, they were just like, oh, yeah, the ecclesia, sure. Because it's so closely related to the idea of synagogue. But in him, see, they didn't struggle with that. Because inherent in that is the relation of the kingdom of all the redeemed of all the ages. So they never stumbled at the church. Just kind of a food for thought there. And in this church, Jesus gave these offices, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, for the purpose of our study today is the issue of pastors and teachers. Poimen, we're going to see in a minute, is the word for shepherd here. And notice before we leave the slide that, that he did this for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So, biblical elders, which is basically the, that's the true office. That's, that's, the, that's, that's the technical name of that office. Shepherding is just a function of that office. Pastoring is a function. Pastoring is another word for shepherd. It's the same thing, poimen in the Greek. This is a function of an elder. You understand, right? Okay, the job that they have, that they're appointed to do, is to equip all of you to do the work of ministry so that the body of Christ will be edified. See? See why you have to have those? Notice at the end, it, it closes with, that the body of Christ may be edified. It edifies the Lord Jesus 
when his people that comprise his body are serving in strength and wisdom because of the godly leadership that is equipping and training them to do so. And there's accountability all through that. It's a large subject. I'll never get it done in 20 minutes. So you understand then, he gave these to the church and focusing in on pastors and teachers. There's a much bigger thing we could talk about here about the other stuff, but another day. Now, as I said before, the Greek word for pastors and teachers is poimen. It means Christian leader or shepherd, a leader of a Christian. You're a shepherd. When you're appointed as an elder, you're, you, are, you are now appointed to be a shepherd. Anybody here ever shepherd sheep? Oh, you did. They knew who you were then. Did they go where you go? Yep. So you better go right, huh? Okay. So if you jumped off a cliff, would they? <laughs> I'm just because... I bet they would. It's important then that the church appoint sound, sound what? Well, very sound professionals. No. Doctrinally sound men that know and love Jesus and are consumed with the word of God. A leader of a, con- of a Christian congregation understood as a shepherd over a flock or sheep. This is poimen. That's where the Ephesians 4 verses show up. But there's other words too. I'm not trying to muddy the water here. The word presbyteros, presbyterians, okay? We also get the word elder. We get our main word elder from that, okay? Poimon again, shepherd or slash pastor. And then finally, episkopos. You have the Episcopal church This is where we get the word overseer. So there's three words that comprise the one word, elder. And then, of course, the less technical one, poimen, being the function of an elder or an overseer. Everyone follow? I'm really trying to make it as plain as I can. Okay. So it says, all these terms are used to describe the same office in the New Testament. When I was in Oklahoma... I went up to the deacon one day, and I said, hey, I've been reading my Bible, and it says here, elders, do we have those? The deacons are the elders. I'm like, but it says elders, like that's separate. It's two of them. No, they're one. We just, we just combined them, and I said, but, but I have, and then I'm out the door, you know, because I was 21 or something, and just get, get lost. Pose a question. Who do we think we are in saying that we can combine things or or take liberties with the text that God doesn't allow? Now look, there are lots of difficult things that we're like, I don't know. And you you can read and you have to do the best you can with it. I get those. But some things are just plain as day. And then you say, well, we just combine those. You don't have the authority to do that. You, you can't do that. This isn't one of those, you know, uh, what is the sin unto death? Because we could talk about that all day. I don't know. Like, but this is pretty clear. And uh, he's appointed these 
And as we read the rest of the battery of Scripture, we understand that there are always a plurality of them. It's never just one. So I'm sorry, but the Bible does tell us what kind of government the church is supposed to have. It's supposed to have a plurality of elders. More than one. And so you have to be very careful about how that's done. Okay. In Acts 14.23, the responsibility of the preeminence of Christ by the officers in the body. Because now when you step into that office of elder, you have a double accountability on you. It comes with a price. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. This is, notice what it says, the term elders. Paul and Barnabas did this. They were uh, doing that. And in every church, plural, with prayer and fasting. They re, and they, so they didn't do it lightly. They turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust because they're going to need it. Okay, And so by definition then, the elder structure of church government is a collective form of leadership in which each elder shares equally the position. Did you get all that? Authority, they they share equally the position, the authority, and the responsibility of the office. In contemporary terms, it is referred to as multiple church leadership, plurality, shared leadership, or team leadership. The opposite of collective leadership, and I like this part, is unitary leadership, monarchal, uh, monarchal rule, or one-man leadership. You can't have that. Because I'll tell you, I, I've been in ministry for 30 years. I've seen lots of things. In most of those years, I was solo and operated alone. And that is really, really dangerous. And it's also really, really exhausting. But when you have a plurality of elders that you're a part of, suddenly the church isn't built on you. So the church isn't built on me, God forbid, nor is the church built on any one of the elders we have. Okay, the church is built on Christ. Therefore, the leadership of the church bound in the elder body then is an equal part of that joint seeking and searching of the Lord for what to do and how to guide the body. It's, it's not just one. And if it ever becomes just one, you've lost the elder body. It's over. I mean, why have one, right? In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, we have our standard uh, qualifications. I'm going to read those. 1 Timothy 3, 1. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, first, I want to stop here and say, it is okay to desire the position of an elder. Bishop is another word for overseer, slash elder, slash, you know, you get into shepherd, appointment, all that. Remember the words. To desire, but but what kind of desire should you have? So, I like this. The, the word here used in 3.1 of 1 Timothy is orgetai. And it means to stretch oneself toward, forward, to grasp, to seek after. Its distinct Greek form, desireth. The other one being epithumi is the opposite of the word orgetai. Epithumi is like a tug of war. So, follow along. What one does voluntarily is more esteemed than what one does when asked. In James 3.1, for example, I'll turn there. We have, my brethren, 
Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. Anyone want to be a Sunday school teacher? Just we need some. But but really, now this is New King James. Okay, all the translations are good. But but to bring it out in the Greek, what he's actually employing here is, don't just go out and become a teacher because you want the claim to fame. That is the epithumi tug of war. You're wanting a claim. You're wanting the, the, uh, the fan club. You, you want to be seen. You want to be heard. But rather, be like the orgetai, which is one who is distinguishing themselves by what they do. In other words, this is just natural to who you are. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So you, you see a difference. I'm serving because I love to do this, and it just, I would do it if I had nobody, <laughs> right? And, and, but versus the one who says, oh, I just, you know, hey, can I be on... I mean, I'm sure JT has stories being a worship leader, but I've heard it here at this church before back in the early days. You'd be amazed at how many people will come sometimes with an eyeball for this stage and, and they, they say they can sing or they can play and you can automatically tell they just need to be seen. They just want to be heard. And then when they sing to the Lord, they're just grandstanding themselves and, well, aren't you so cool? Okay, because now what you've done is you've taken up the preeminence of Christ and you've tried to draw away one of those rays of light from him to yourself. No, thank you. That's not what the stage is for. And actually, I would prefer to think of this as an altar where one comes to die. So, but you get the idea. Now, that's the word desire. It also goes on to say in 1 Timothy 3, Boy, I'm packing this in. This is dense, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness. And then, of course, it says in verse 4, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. And that sense the reason, because verse 5 says... For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And so suddenly we see something here. After this list of obvious attributes of character, yes, we need them to be all those things. We should all be striving to be all those things, right? Someone says, well, I don't have to be sober-minded because I'm not an elder or deacon or a teacher. No, you you do. But especially these guys because... They have a double accountability they have. But notice in verse 4, the word rule, rules and rule in verse 5 are used twice. So I looked at that. What does that mean? This is out of the commentary of the Reformation Study Bible that was edited by R.C. Sproul. It's at the very, very bottom in the fine print if you watch Willy Wonka. Um, Rule his own house again. Men who do not have children are not excluded from the eldership. Yeah, we know that. But for those who do have children, which this seems to be referring to. Now listen, this is really key. I'm going to put my glasses on. I don't mess it up. Listen. In the green. 
For those men who do desire the position of a bishop that have kids, the attitudes of their children reflect the fruit of their spiritual management of his home and thus forecast the effect of his leadership in the church. Every time I've ever heard this before, it was always, you kids bad? If you have bad kids, you can't do anything. You got bad kids. Okay. Well, there's a big discussion with all of that, and I think we all know what we're talking about here with, with every child. I mean, they're going to do dumb stuff. That's just how it is. But when there is a, a child that is just continually projecting the same message, yeah, it's the, it's the kids. The kids end up something bad, right? But... Where's the inspiration coming from? Where's, might there be an influence of what we don't see? Where are you learning that? It's kind of like when you have five-year-olds come up to you and cuss you a blue streak. Well, where did they learn that? At home. That's where they learned that. So, now, is that true in every case? No, and I'll be first to say it, okay? Because there are some godly men that just their kids aren't doing too good at all. The difference is, generally, you will see a lot of the same manifestations, though, that the child is displaying in the man. Regularly. Now, sometimes it can be hid really well. But you watch. And it will reveal. So I just thought that was a pretty powerful part. Going on, it says he must have a good testimony. Oh, it says in verse 6 he's not to be a novice. um, Because obviously a a brand new convert doesn't have any business doing this. But it says in verse 7, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. A good testimony, good character, good testimony, a, a confirmed testimony concerning a person's character, one whose character or conduct is free from any damaging moral or spiritual accusations. Now, you follow me around for one week and you're going to find something to throw stones at, I promise you. But I do my best to go back and make right what I've done wrong because this isn't talking about moral perfection. We only have one that is. Remember who the preeminent one is. Okay? We're talking about a men who have a good testimony of being godly men, even when they fail. They go back and make it right. They just, even their bad moods are uncomfortable for them because they're torn between pleasing Christ and being human. They're battling pietism. Versus piety. Okay. Anything with an ism can get pretty bad. But piety is a good aim. Holiness. But they get torn. And, and so we all struggle in many things. And we're all human. And it's really wrong when the church highlights on a family of a pastor. A poiman who happens to be an elder. A lead elder. And suddenly they, they see their kid going through a bad phase. Or they see the, the man struggling. And all they do is cast rocks instead of trying to understand what's happening. Because he bleeds just like you. 
He gets headaches, and if he eats too much sugar, he gets really crabby. So don't feed him anything before service, okay? He doesn't care for it either. There's a lot of things he'd like to eat, but he can't because it changes his whole demeanor because he has blood sugar issues or something. I'm saying we're people. We struggle, and we're not perfect. We have a rule here at Northridge. Always assume the best. Because I tell you, if you get offended by me, I want you to know something. I have a full life, and I'm not aiming to try to get one over on you to give myself kicks. I'm happy with my life. I love my kids and my little grandkids. I love my wife of 30 years this July, right? And, and I love bacon, and uh, I, I, I love a good long run in the summer when it's 100 degrees on asphalt, and I love good sermons and good books. I love especially time to read them, and I love it when my brain can finally focus for at least five minutes and I can write something down in my project. I love stuff like that, so I don't need to get my fix off making you feel bad. So if by chance you catch me off guard and I'm struggling, please pray for me and love me. You know the difference between a jerk and someone who's just trying to live? Mm. Okay. Lastly, I thought this was a perfect uh, ending quote for our, for our, our, our textual portion of this today. This is by Costi Hinn. Anyone know who Costi Hinn is? He is the nephew of Benny Hinn. Holy Spirit machine gun. Remember? Okay. And they all went, and they fall down. Mm. Okay, so Costi is a very sound man. And he says this. Far too many elder boards are nothing more than a polity board when instead they should be pastoral. So never forget, church. You know what you should demand of your elders? Shepherd. They should be shepherding. How do they shepherd? They talk to you everywhere, especially at church, but especially outside of church too. They call you on the phone. They say, hey, how are you? Do you need any bacon? Just asking. Trying to shed the, spare, spread the love. They, 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 they talk to you. They check on you. Now, are they going to do this all perfectly? Like there's a rotation. We have to call so many a week. But they engage. They, they, know, they, they know what's going on in the life of the church, not because of what they see on Sunday reflected in an hour and a half, but because of they're involved with you through the week. Hey, Blaine, you were a shepherd, which I'd like to see that. But nonetheless... Did you actually have to go stand in the midst of the sheep to be their shepherd? Did you touch them? Yeah. Did you feed them? Did you, did you clean their wounds? Did you put them up when they got out? Okay. Did you talk to them? Ha <laughs> ha. Blaine talks to sheep. Okay. <laughs> But that, you know, you, we laugh, but in that little 10 minute, 10, 10 second exchange with a shepherd, what was he doing? In order to be a shepherd, you got to engage the sheep. Okay. The church doesn't need corporate shot callers. 
not shock callers, but shot callers. Our call is shots. It needs shepherds. True elders are ultimately put in their position by the Holy Spirit, so tremble, tremble. Not by being golfing buddies with the senior pastor. I don't golf. (laughs) Or a wealthy influencer in the church. The term elder in the Bible is reserved for spiritual men who shepherd the flock. Overseers, pastors, shepherds, and elders are all operating as the same kind of servant leaders of the church. Therefore, in light of all this, Costi says, elders are spiritual men who are spiritually minded. They aren't concerned with holding a position of power, but rather being a faithful steward of what Christ has entrusted them with. That sounds good. That sounds really good. 